0: on
1: Seven minutes after two o'clock. Thank you so much for staying with us. You're on SAFM and this is Life Happens. Now, we've been hearing uh, in the news for a while now in South Africa, especially recently, talk of child trafficking, talk of human trafficking. In fact, videos have been going viral and so on. The question is... How prevalent is human trafficking in South Africa? You get people who say, no, we are becoming alarmist when we talk about it. Then you get people who really do get freaked out and say, well, you know, I'm going to take every step possible to avoid my child or any person that I know are getting trafficked. So the question is, how prevalent is this trafficking in South Africa? Brioni, is Brioni uh, Frickin, Fricklin is a national director of Love Justice South Africa. She joins us now on the line. Bryony, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. So how prevalent is human trafficking in South Africa?
2: Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I mean, yes, we have seen a lot going on social media around human trafficking, and it does kind of feel like there's more happening now than ever before. But the reality is that modern-day slavery has been around, um, and it happens on a daily basis. Um, we kind of see various forms of trafficking and what it looks like and it's not always just you know a child snatched and thrown into the boot of a car but it's people who've been deceived into a job that doesn't exist or a uh, life in another country um that you know seems better than the one that people have at the moment it's people who've been deceived into a romantic relationship with someone who promises that they'll look after them forever or Opportunities for school that someone's never had before, and now they have this opportunity um, sort of at their hands. So, you know, it's it's these seemingly normal realities that we're all looking for jobs, we're all looking for a better life, we're all looking for love, and yet so many people are deceived into um, sex trafficking and forced labor, forced marriage, um, domestic servitude, organ trafficking, forced begging, and crime. And, um, yeah, it's how how it does happen with sort of, all around us, and I think COVID has definitely heightened that. Yeah. With. You know, people's livelihoods that
1: have been devastated. Your organization, Love Justice, deals with prevention of human trafficking. With circumstances that you've just painted to, you know, for, for the audience now, it's, it's very normal for somebody to try and apply for a job online, for instance, and and try their luck. It's very normal for many mm. people to try their luck with love online and so on. So how then do you help us? not make those mistakes and, and you know, follow the, the, the human trafficking trail?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I always say it starts with that gut feeling, right? We all need to, to have empowered ourselves with enough information so that we're able to know when something just doesn't feel right and to question it and to, to dig a little bit deeper. Um, Love Justice does um, prevention work. You're absolutely right in saying that. And we are based in transit hubs. So where people are moving, where people may be moving to a new job or to a job interview, where people are moving to a love interest, where people are migrating, where people are going to a new city for a new school. So we base ourselves where people are moving. And our sort of strategy is that at some point someone is going to move. And if we're in the places where we can spot trafficking happening at, you know, at, on the ground mm-hmm. or sometimes it's just about talking to people and finding out why they're traveling, where they're going, what have they been promised, and then offering to help them figure out whether it is a safe opportunity or not. And then sort of equipping them with the information that they need to make a decision for themselves about whether they pursue this, um, this opportunity that may be too good to be true. And sometimes it's quite obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and other times it's not. Other times it's, ooh, it is a risky move. Like you have to decide that for yourself, whether you're willing to risk your life um for it and a lot of people kind of just say, Oh but I'll just leave or you know, if it's too bad but the reality is you can't always leave and so that's this most strategic moment when people are traveling to something that may sort of be them being trafficked um that we believe is a good place to be mm. talking to people and empowering people with information. And then we also have a Freedom app. It's called The Freedom app, and it's available for free on the Google Play Store. And this app just allows people to connect with our team of, sort of experts who work on these things on a day-to-day basis to ask questions, to learn about modern-day slavery and what that is. And then it also has a free built-in panic button that if anyone gets into a position where they can't get out of on their own, they can press this panic button, and we will um, mobilize the closest um, private security to come rescue them.
1: Brandy is it always obvious to the trafficked that they are trafficked
2: yeah. and i'll and i'll
1: ask this question in this sense in the sense yeah. that i know communities where in in certain regions it's 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 what happens right there is a connector who promises you a job in Johannesburg as a domestic worker, right? And everybody knows their connector. In fact, there are people who then pose themselves in Johannesburg as agencies of domestic workers. But you wouldn't necessarily know how that transaction happened. And the person being trafficked doesn't necessarily know that they're being trafficked all they know is that they're going to be a domestic worker and the person who organizes for them is an agent. Do people who are trafficked always know that they are being trafficked and that they are, you
2: know, a commodity? That's a great question. And I always say that traffickers are master manipulators, Mm. right? They know exactly what to say to someone to get them to move to a place where they are going to become enslaved. Um, so no, it's not always obvious to the person being trafficked because they may have it may have been a relationship that's been developed over weeks or months or a year. You know, maybe someone who's invested a lot of money in their life already. Mm. It may be someone who's promised them all the opportunities that they've been dreaming about. Um, it may you know, be also just be someone who is so desperate that they have to risk their lives just to put some food on their table for their family. Mm. Um, and so I think in terms of how aware we are as to whether it's happening or not, it also comes down to our definition of trafficking. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us, and I did too before I entered this field, we have a very narrow view of what trafficking mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's children and women mm. for sexual purposes. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. And actually, it's so much broader than that. Yeah. Um, and so I think it, it also starts with us understanding what trafficking or what modern-day slavery, what it means to be enslaved in 2020. I think that that's why education and having these conversations that you're having on your show is so important, because it you know allows us to imagine all the different ways in which we may be deceived into these things.
1: Someone who is young, who is looking for opportunities perhaps work opportunities who has never worked before hasn't got a sense of what the marketplace is like and what the rates would Mm -hmm. be and is offered a minimal amount of money would would you classify someone like that as being enslaved so someone who's only given the bare minimum to i suppose just eat not even eat all three meals but maybe just enough for one meal and is given maybe accommodation but when you are exposed to what would be the normal rate for that person you would know that that is not okay but they wouldn't necessarily know that that's not okay how how do we get those people to see that that's not okay
2: and I mean, isn't it a sad world that we live in where exploitative work environments are sometimes someone's only opportunity yeah. to survive? Yeah. I think, I mean, it, it opens up a much bigger conversation about what opportunities for a livelihood do people have? But um, I think for me, the key is if someone is not able to refuse work, if they're not able to walk away, yeah. that's that is sort of where there would be elements of control and strength and coercion that would then fall under the definition of trafficking. So mm-hmm. if someone is being exploited, extroite, mm-hmm. um, they, if they're allowed to leave or if they're able to leave, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they, they're just not um, sort of tied to a, in a room and are unable yeah. to leave, physically yeah. leave, but, you know, they their forward to maybe with someone else, mm. or they may have been forced to overstay their visas, in which case they become illegal and then mm. they can't go to law enforcement. You know, they may be hooked on drugs um, and they can't leave the person that's giving them those drugs. Um, it may be because there's threats of violence, either yeah. towards them or towards their family. Yeah. Um, it may be just the, you know, the, the shame that's often um, given to people and they feel so ashamed because of what they've been often forced mm. to do, but they can't go home because how will their family or their community accept them mm. back? And then debt bondage is also a huge way in which people are kept in a situation where they can't leave, where they've racked up this debt. Maybe they, someone paid for their expenses to travel to Johannesburg or to travel overseas. Um,
1: okay, so <laughs> there goes her line. Let's take a quick break. After the break... I have a trafficking survivor that I want us to meet. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. We've been discussing human trafficking with my guest, uh, Brioni Fickling, who is a a national director at the Love Justice South Africa. And she was just giving us really all sorts of um, nuanced definitions of what human trafficking looks like and what it can be. Griselda Grootboom is somebody I would like you to meet because she's a human trafficking survivor and an author of a book called Exit. Griselda, I really appreciate you making the time to talk to us. Good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon, I and mean, Thank you so much for having me. What a privilege, what an honor. Thank, you, thank you so much for being on your show. Such amazing.
1: a pleasure. Tell us your story, Griselda.
0: I grew up in Cape Town Um, I grew up in Woodstock Roger Street as a very happy kid I had lived with my grandparents and my dad Um, and then we got hit by you know being sort of kicked out of our area um, in the time of the 80s I think I was eight Um, and in that time Um, My grandmother passed on the same year, my grandfather. My dad just got lost into substance because of everything, just losing everything, collapsing. And that's how me and my dad became homeless. Mm -hmm. And in becoming homeless, um, my street life started to take place. Uh, My dad would just leave me sort of in certain areas that he felt could be safe, like adult shelters. Um, and in growing up in the streets, I started to get to know the street life, joined the rest of the street kids under the Cape Town Bridge. Um, we lived with glue antennas. And with that, um, you know, just living in between shelters, the shelter I lived in was in town next to the police station. And there I was trying to work out how to survive as a street kid and first ever. Um, But because we all sort of just at the same time, the streets of kids and homeless life just took place. And then we got to learn the gangsterism life. Um, And gangsterism life was sort of our level of being in a group where we know we'll be safe no matter what happens. Mm. Um, But, yeah, to learn violence. Um, Back and forth, just shelters i think my first encounter ever was me trying to go back to my mom in kailicha she was married to uh, another guy had kids um and she wasn't happy about me rocking up in the house She'll she introduced me as sort of her brother's kids you know um and she doesn't understand this new responsibility which was sort of another phase in my life where i had to learn that you just one of the rejected ones mm. um and not knowing how to speak am not knowing how to adapt to this is my mom and she's, you know, doing this to me. Um, I learned in the beginning just being there, um, you know, this is what the culture is in this area. Um, and due to that, uh, four guys at a tap when I was waiting for my turn for water came, held a knife against my waist and put me into a shack and they, you know, they whatever they wanted to do and that was rape after that day i you know ran away from the house my mom's house and just went back to the street um going on just living back and forth in the streets breaking in cars getting radios then you go and stay in the shelter for two or three days and then you go back again on the street because the shelter itself was very you know lack of resources also all the kids were there kids from all different kind of walks were there um so it was half juvenile, half overpacked, half less restored. So you could imagine the environment. It reminded you always. Um so turning eighteen, the year I was turning eighteen was the year where the shop was like, Listen, you're getting older now, so it's time for you to leave. Um you're not doing well in all the programs we try to give you. Um, and with that is where I met the friends. And that year is also the year where I was like, okay, let me tap into the organizational programs and maybe I'll behave and they'll keep me there longer. Mm-hmm. Basically, at a young age already, we had to learn survival tools of, you know, being nice. I mean, you get seated in front of social workers every week and get questioned the same thing over and over. And that drives you insane also mm-hmm. when you're at age. Um, so in that year is where I tried to go back to school. I and mean, going back to school is where I met the friends. Mm-hmm. Um, she sort of met us in 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 the in sort of in a corner space where we were smoking our drugs there also. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where she came and asked us for smoke. And that's how we became friends. We became friends very close. She comes from a very well family. Um, her need of desire becoming friends with street kids was just drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so she would hang with us literally walk with us to the shelter wait for us there we would go back under the bridge weekends we stay there uh smoke she would tell us you know she's has friends of rich places and they will leave their cars open and that's how loyalty started so she she went to johannesburg to study moved with the family and i asked if i could follow her and she said yeah sure just come through and then you know i will make sure you have a place to stay and you decide if you're going to change your life <laughs> i took the opportunity um, followed her to Johannesburg, got there. My mind safety was sorted because I know who I'm going to. Mm-hmm. Um, she's going to be my map in Johannesburg. I'm not going to be lost. And, of course, going to meet up with her in I uh, took the train, got to Johannesburg, met up with her. Um, we drove to Yovo. In Yovo is where she had an apartment. Um, extremely excited to move into this new life of mine. Mm-hmm got into the apartment and it was, it was one of those just floor apartments where everything is, you know, there's no upstairs. And she showed me into a room which was extremely empty and I wasn't, you know, like worried about why there's nothing because I knew she also moved. Mm. Um, and she showed me and said this would be my room and when things pick up, I will sort of find sleeping stuff. I trusted every single word that came out of my mouth. Mm. Um, and then I said I was going to take a nap, and she was going to get me food, and that was the last time I met her. Wow. And just laying, taking my nap, I was walking up by like three guys. Um, they walked in as quickly as they could, undressed me, duct tape around my eye, um, tied me up, and injected me sort of with a drug behind my knees, with, through my veins, and my lower body got Numb. Um, and in my mind, I was just like, you know, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to get cut up in pieces. The same thing is happening to her. And as I was doing that, I could feel that my body's getting more numb. Um, and I just laid there, breathing through whatever breaths I could have left. And then as time went on, men started just coming in and doing what they want to do one by one. And I think because of the drug, it was so. Um, hard to have any sort of feelings. I think mm-hmm. the most feeling was you feel hopeless, you feel angry. Um, and for me, the anger was just so, like, what the hell? Like, can we get done with this day? But you wake up, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Moment coming, And you started to just learn how to smell. You started to learn... Um, n- giving up on crying, but you still feel tears go around your face. Um, Every client that came in, it was just another ecstasy in my mouth and cocaine on my teeth. Mm. And then I got exchanged with a younger girl, and they brought her sort of in the middle of the night, and they threw me out. Mm. And of course, my street life animal instincts kicked in, and I just ended up joining a homeless guy, walked with him from Yoval to Park Station, got there. There was a lot of truck drivers. Um, There was a lady, men selling drugs around the area. And when I went into one of the truck drivers, gave me what he wanted, gave me money. And I was welcomed by the guys selling drugs and pimping girls. And that's how I ended up in Johannesburg um, and all other areas of Brussels and being trafficked through Brussels through the process.
1: So you essentially are saying the trusted friend is the one um, who had it sold it on
0: for um, until the age i was like, 28 i was sort of taken from one brothel from Johannesburg to port elizabeth and in port elizabeth by that age i was uh, sort of in my 26. that's where when i worked sort of very consistently under the madam's hands and then I got pregnant with
1: someone. How long ago was this? No. How long ago was this? When you got pregnant? Okay. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more after this. It's 2.30. Let's go to Uzi Lusaku for the latest in headlines.
0: Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. Leading the conversation.
1: It's an uncomfortable conversation we're having. It's about human trafficking and we've been speaking to Griselda Grootboom, who has been human trafficked. She was a victim for for many, many years and uh, we had lost her line there for a minute. Um, She is back on the line with us. We were also having a conversation a bit earlier on with Bryony Fickling, who is at the National Director. um, She's a National Director at Love Justice South Africa, and they help prevent trafficking. So if you think you know somebody who needs help, even if it's just a feeling, it's okay. You can definitely alert them. And they are lovejustice.ngo, okay? You can do that even if it's just a feeling, even if it's just a feeling, it's okay. They'll take the details. They will go check it out. And if it's nothing, it's nothing. But maybe you could be saving someone's life. Griselda, thank you so much for coming back to us. Thank I, you. Sorry
2: about that. Message. No problem.
1: I, I, I had asked you when, how long ago was it when you fell pregnant?
0: Um, I got Pregnant at the age of 26 when I ended up working for the Brussels. Um uh, Yeah, and that was sort of re- just three months. That's when I was like, oh, I'm pregnant. I, you weren't expecting to be pregnant because in Brussels when you work, like you're always given a morning after tablet um, to make sure if that's the case. It's always you go to the clinic and, and trouble the over there and, and get assistance. There was always this prevention of not like, getting pregnant from a brothel, um, from madams and all the other women that we met. But this one, it was, I only realized within three months I was pregnant this Summer. Um, and I, I thought I was going to be, you know, abortion, but the madam let me work continuously. And there was a race issue of the fact my market was so low. Um, I, you know, people were enjoying a pregnant woman. Um, and I was working until five, six. Um, and in six is where she called the doctor to do in-house abortion, and after abortion, I was asked three hours later to put sponges and go back to work, and I guess that's when the fighting in me started, because I was so under so much pain, and all I could smell was blood, and I said no. And in me saying no, of course, to my madam, it was the anger she got, and then she beat me up with her bounces, and then they drove me back to Joburg, threw me there in the streets, and I got assistant from the other woman that worked in the street called the ambulance and that's how I ended up in the hospital and that was sort of the little door of exiting from prostitution and sex slavery.
1: Um, You say that was the little door um, when you found yourself in hospital.
2: Yeah.
1: What you know obviously one would ask had you not thought of um, asking the police for help beforehand And I think it's a silly question, but what's your response to that?
0: Oh, no, it it is not, because I got introduced to the police when I was a young girl already, like a street kid. Um, And that introduction was extremely sexual to me, because when I stole something as a street kid and I get locked up in jail for the weekend, for me to get taken out of of the hospital quickly... I mean, the police, it was you had to give the policemen pleasure because they got sick and tired of us. So the guy in the blue for me was like, oh, please, don't even bother to go to him Mm. "Um, because he's going to ask you for a BJ for you to be released. Mm. Um, So the, the, the words of people thinking, why didn't you run away? the environment I grew up already in, in Cape Town, on the streets, in gangsterism where it's like, there's no policeman that's going to assist you. Mm. And then ongoing in Brussels when we were working, the brothel I was working in Port Elizabeth, there was a raid every like month and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, you would see the policeman's face and then a week later he comes in with Ali's uniform and he becomes mm. a buyer and he becomes the brutal buyer on your body. So reaching out for assistance and and, and help, it was insane. It was like you know you cannot Um, and you you see these things soberly Mm -hmm. and you see these things high and it's the same. Mm -hmm. So nobody's going to basically help you. The same with going to the clinic um, when you were left in the middle of, uh, by a truck driver or pimp in the middle, in between province or or metros, you'd go to your clinic for assistance for them to help you to take out things or ask for condoms. They get tired of seeing your face. They're like, you know. So those systems taught me there is no assistance. Mm. So So I didn't think of running away. I didn't think of bothering. I have seen the jail cell. So when people do question what you just said now, it was like, (laughs) who am I going to ask you? You've got no documentation on you because nobody has ever given you that opportunity. So it it, it was those things that did not let me run to anyone and go and help and Mm -hmm. ask for help. And so what then
1: was the shift in hospital?
0: Um, for me, the shift in the hospital, it was the good Samaritan that came to help me to get my first sort of assistance with health care, with substance. Of course, she made sure she writes a report on me. And that's how at the age of 26, as a black woman with no ID could get into rehab because there was no way I could knock on the door of a rehab house and walk. I need help. They wouldn't let me in um, because there's other levels of discussion. Um, so with her as an organization and as a woman that's been working in the hospital, her signature and her credentials gave an approval for me to get healthcare substance uh, um, rehab assistance. I took that, got half of the drugs out of my system out. Um, she helped me to sort of serve in a shelter, which is in the center of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a shelter for babies that get thrown away by parents. Mm-hmm. Um, they police would take the kids and bring them there. And then we would have to wash and clean them. And that was the second phase of of me thinking of getting out of prostitution Mm. and um, human trafficking because I was running away from pimps. Mm -hmm. It wasn't me saying, oh, wow, I'm so healed now. I want to go and stand at the corner. No, it was me literally trying to escape from people that knew where to find me. And that's how the pimp could find me. Also, it was easy for him to go to the police station and describe a birthmark or a, a like he knows my physical Mm -hmm. and he came into the space where the same shelter and i knew that i need to go and go back to the pimp and this is how he sort of used me for drug trafficking and that's where you got to learn the other side of human trafficking where they kept you in the house you had to learn how to cook and pack um send you wherever they send you with it um, and that was the other side. And then sometimes they would let me be, and I'd go into shelters or churches that would be giving out food at a certain time. Mm-hmm. And they follow you. They know that you're going to go and seek help, and they follow you. And this is where I started to live this two life where I became a church girl um, and pretending like, no, I really need to go to church and do things, and then I'll meet you here again. And that's how it went on. And then I remember through a church, I met a pastor and I knew this is a different dealer. I took his opportunity to drop his drugs in Cape Town. And that's how I got to my third phase of exiting. The fourth phase was obviously, where am I going to run to? ran straight to my mom in Kailicha, um, gave me the money for the drug job I did, and I stayed in height there. Um, my health kicked in, and that's where I started to get further assistance from other NGOs when I started to knock on clinics, and, and that's how I got information. And I used every information to get to the point I am today and still striving to get full establishment.
1: Yeah. My word. Your story, uh, Griselda, is, um, I mean, I, I think it's, it's all sorts of things. It's quite chilling. It's also encouraging because here you are talking to us now. And yeah. I wonder if anybody's listening to your story maybe in a similar situation maybe not but maybe needs help what what's your your message to
0: them i would say you know what there is help out there it's not like before when there wasn't help there's a lot of help out there you are allowed to call um, you know, the human trafficking line under A21, you're allowed to now, with Love Justice also, saying this. there's a lot of help. The fact that I'm out here screaming and doing quite a lot of voicing um, around the fact that there are women that are being trafficked. There are women that are being trafficked um, um, grooming. There are women being trafficked um, manipulatively. There are women being trafficked... Um, in labor trafficking, where they know the unemployment rate in South Africa are, is going high, women are going to go to spaces and places where there's a loud voice of social gatherings, and traffickers and pimps are aware of this. They come in all forms. Um, it's not like it was last month, because last or two years ago, we got traffickers like your Omar Toso. So the traffickers are changing, and people need to know that, that it has been there, but it was under uh, the table. So for this thing of, you know, people in our country thinking there's no such thing, it, it it's very sad because here I am screaming and shouting. And today we have been getting um, victims calling um, the 821 number or 800 looking for help. And that should tell the government and that should tell Brigitte that Listen, this is real. And I would say to women and girls, please be aware. Do not travel alone. Travel in groups. Always share your location. Always the only tool that we have as women right now is media when it comes to awareness, prevention, and alert that I am being trafficked. If it's fake, yet be I am so happy that there is a noise around it. And mm. those who are saying it's fake, I'm happy because sexual exploitation is going in all forms right now. Women are also getting and they are being silenced. So if there is an alarm that you know in your community, there's this guy that you just don't understand, he's always crowded by guys, and you see it's a young girl, you know how our kids are growing up these days, call the number and say, there's alarm here that I feel like this is, is too much for the past four weeks it's been every weekend that is an alarm for me in schools also if schools if you see a child getting in a taxi fire please let that parent or that teacher be aware of it because today traffickers go online go on mixed it go on to go meet young kids they meet each other and the next minute he's sending her an uber or a bolt or a taxifier, pick her up and it goes into the destination of the trafficker, she's gone. Those things are also happening. Please just be aware and reach out, and that's my my advice.
1: I so appreciate you making the time, Griselda. I'm going to take a voice note. Um, Maybe you'll stay while you listen to the voice note. Um, They perhaps want to say something to you.
0: Good afternoon. Hey, hey, hey SAFN listener, this is the touching and the very painful story of this lady. I don't want to say she's strong or what. Whatever happened to her. You see, sometimes we just see ladies standing in the corner and assume that they chose that life. Yes, there might be ones that chose the life, but some of them when i hear now what she says here, yeah, it's very touching it's very touching this shows that we are the problem all of us men and women We are a problem she was solved by her friend
1: uh good afternoon pamela. this is Togozani in turban uh listening to the story of that lady that was uh, trafficked uh pamela the reality of the of this is that it is happening all over the country and it is happening exactly like how the lady is describing. But if I were to stand here and say I bet my one rand that this was never done to her by South African men, and if I said, I imagine it was done by a Nigerian man, I'll be labeled as xenophobic. So <clears throat> I don't know, sister, maybe I should just be xenophobic, but I bet my rand that this was done to her by a Nigerian man and what can we say, we are xenophobic.
0: Griselda, do you want to respond to that? I want to say, you know what, it, I wouldn't say it's xenophobic. It was just the, the time when we speak about it, I only got time to learn who other people, the first guys were not Nigerians in that room. Mm. Um, and I was saying to one of my friends, like I sometimes I feel like I'm still stuck in that room. Mm. It was, it's African men. And with African men, we've always had this problem where African men do not want to see black women rise up. And even the men that came in that room were start African men buying my body. So either way, with every religion, whatever culture, I put them all in a space of men. Because if I had to tell you the voices that like sometimes you hear those men say to you, it was different languages. So whoever did it to me, it wasn't the Nigerian, the Malawans, because the people that undressed me were Malawans and the language you could hear. And then continuously my hair being kept by pimps were Nigerians. But the people were buying with South Africans. And that's why I say there's nothing of being xenophobia identifying men. Because it's African men that is supposed to know where Africa comes from, from slavery, for starters. Now, the same African men is moving slavery towards women by trafficking them. And I don't understand why would African men do that to African women. Because if I had to tell you about how many men came in that room, whenever he does whatever he does, he would say things in my ears where sometimes, even today, going through health issues, you get angry. So it's African men, all of you, from being a bishop, from being a policeman, from being a fireman, from being a normal guy, businessman, it was men. Only to learn other races when I ended up in Brussels only to learn about other things when I was taken from one hand to another. So my conclusion to the answer to the gentleman that said that voicemail, it is African men. You guys are having war on our bodies because we wanna be who we wanna be. Just a rape case, just an Omotoso case. Look at the resistance they're giving us in the courtrooms. They are fighting the voices of women saying, Please, we, we are done. We don't want to be sexless. So now you're trafficking women. You are exploiting us on all forms. You are finding language to say to us, this is what we're good for, sex slavery. So it is not just one nation. It is all in this African continent.
1: Brioni, um, your comments to the kind of cases that come through, and I, I'm raising this because, in fact, a lot of people... Um, who send voice notes and and send messages? Um, most of them coming from men are saying it's not us; it's Nigerians. How do you respond to that?
2: I mean, I think Griselda made a really good point um, that it it is so many different types of people. And the reality is that trafficking is an organised crime, right? Like it involves a whole range of people from um, recruiters and handlers and facilitators. And traffickers, like every there's so many different phases in how an individual is trafficked, and all the different people that are involved in the the trafficking of people. Um, In our experience with love justice, I mean we we've seen um, sort of syndicates that are made up of all different types of people. It's a local, their local groups and their global groups, and a mixture of both. I think that this is a global crime. It's organised. It requires networks and syndicates of different people who all have their fingers in the pie. And so, I would, yeah, I would agree with Rosalda and say it's not just one, one race or one ethnicity or one nationality. Like it's a, it's a global issue.
1: Let's take some voice, uh, some more voice notes coming through. All right, we're going to. We've run out of time, Griselda. Thank you so much one more time for your voice. It's really, really important. Um, we really appreciate, and and we don't take it lightly at all. Briony, just listening to you and and all of us, all of us from all different walks of life, wherever we're sitting. What's your message to us?
2: I would say um, to really equip. All of ourselves we have a responsibility to equip ourselves to be an active bystander and to be someone who you know educates ourselves on the issues that our communities are faced with and to make sure that we're always just on the lookout and keep an eye out for what's going on around you and then ask for help and um, there are so many good resources so many people um, and organizations are willing to assist So download the Freedom app, get in touch with us via our website if you need help. There's the National Trafficking Hotline as well. Um, Yeah, there's so much help if you're looking for it. So that that would be my advice.
1: Thank you so much. Brioni Fickling is a National Director at Love Justice South Africa. And I also want to thank Griselda Grutbom, who is a human trafficking survivor and the author of a book called Exit. The number for that human traffic tra- trafficking hotline is O eight hundred triple two triple seven. O eight hundred triple two triple seven. I will not say it enough. I will come back to repeat that number again later on. Make sure that your children know the number. You keep it in your head wherever you are. You may just need it. It may not be for you. It may be for somebody else who you're observing, who you think something is odd. Oh eight hundred triple two triple seven.